Hello, thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN, and I'm here today with Carol Mayer, Director of Education for Hanson Hunter and Company, and Jennifer LeBay, Curriculum Development Specialist with APACN. Carol and Jennifer join me to discuss some recent Medicare denials related to the use of unspecified diagnosis codes. Welcome, ladies. Carol, in our last podcast in March of 2022, we discussed ICD-10 coding as it relates to the primary diagnosis selection for a skilled Medicare Part A stay and the use of the PDPM ICD-10 mapping file. Recently, facilities have been seeing some denials related to the use of unacceptable diagnosis codes as the primary diagnosis, despite the diagnosis being mapped to a payable clinical category in the mapping file. Can you tell us more about this? Hi, Amy. This was certainly a surprise to us. I know when the notification came out that the MCEs, the Medicare Code Editor, was going to be installed at the Medicare contractors for Medicare claims for nursing homes, I was sure we were going to be fine because we have a CMS mapping tool. And in order for us to complete an MDS, we have to choose a principal diagnosis, a primary diagnosis, and enter it in I-20B for it to map to payment under PDPM. So it didn't feel like that any of the edits related to primary diagnosis were going to cause us problems, but surprisingly they have. The issue is the PDPM mapping tool, there are over 72,000 ICD-10 codes. Each of those codes are mapped to whether there's payment or not. If it's returned to provider, it will not map to payment. And there are 10 other categories that will map to payment. But that coding was not focused completely on following the ICD-10 coding conventions and coding guidelines. And the Medicare code editor, the MCE edits that were installed, are very ICD-10 coding specific. And as nursing home nurses and Medicare specialists in the facility, we need to make sure that the codes that we are choosing for the primary diagnosis and for the secondary diagnosis as well, but for the primary diagnosis, we have to make sure that not only the code will map to payment, but we also have to make sure that we are coding according to the ICD-10 coding conventions and the coding guidelines. When I'm looking at the list of edits in the document that was released by CMS, there are 46 pages of primary diagnoses that will reject a claim because they're considered unacceptable. But when I look through them, most of them, thank goodness, are returned to providers, so it shouldn't cause us very many problems related to those diagnoses. However, there are still pages of diagnoses that will map to payment that will reject the claim. And since I-20B is supposed to match the primary diagnosis on the claim, it is important that we are being very careful and following the coding guidelines when we are choosing that primary diagnosis. And I know we often are, we're very focused on making sure that 
we are finding a mappable diagnosis. In I-20B, the diagnosis is the main reason the resident will require skilled care in the nursing home. And so we should be focusing on determining that diagnosis and following the ICD-10 coding guidelines. I'm going to just give some examples of some diagnoses that will reject according to the MCE edits, but presently will pass through the PDPM mapping file. And many of these codes are the cause of diseases classified elsewhere. And there is a coding convention that the cause of diseases classified elsewhere cannot be primary because we need to code first the underlying condition. So some examples that would, you know, I just looked at the examples and I'm thinking this would be one that might not be obvious to everyone. But so one of them is cardiomyopathy and diseases classified elsewhere. And when we look at the instructions in diseases classified elsewhere, the underlying condition would be coded first. And an example would be if the cardiomyopathy was due to diphtheria, you would code the diphtheria cardiomyopathy instead of the cardiomyopathy and diseases classified elsewhere. Many of the codes that are on the list of unacceptable primary diagnoses are those pathogens and diseases classified elsewhere. For example, if your resident has a urinary tract infection due to MRSA or staph or strep, and we, you know, the coding instructions are to code the underlying condition and then also code the pathogen that caused it. But the pathogen that caused it cannot be primary because it's the cause of diseases classified elsewhere. Another example of an unacceptable primary diagnosis is Z98.890. And I've seen a number of facilities trying to use this code and it is other specified post-procedural state. And when you look at that code, it means it's a personal history of a surgery that's not elsewhere classified. And personal histories would not be a primary diagnosis. A personal history means that the resident has had it in the past, but it's no longer affecting them now. So when you're following the coding guidelines and the coding conventions carefully, you should not run into any trouble with having these unacceptable diagnoses as one that you've chosen as primary. But it is still surprising that the diagnosis that can map to payment can reject a claim. Thank you, Carol. Jennifer, I understand a packet has also taken steps to address this with CMS. Can you tell us more about that? So we at APACN have addressed this concern with the mapping file and the MCE edits not matching, whereas some of the items that, as Carol mentioned, are payable categories under the ICD-10 PDPM mapping file. They are unacceptable at the Medicare Administrator Contractor edits. APACN has addressed this in the SNF PPS proposed rule for fiscal year 2023 comments letter. APACN has asked CMS to take a look at those and rectify the differences so there is some congruency across the edits 
and the mapping file. In some of the cases, we did agree that some of those items that do map to a clinical category because they are those in diseases classified elsewhere, as Carol mentioned, the pathogens and such, that those probably should not be payable categories in the clinical category code mapping. So we did ask CMS to take a look at that and see if they could straighten that out. And hopefully we will see a response to that when the final rule comes out later this summer. In addition to denials being seen for primary diagnoses, some facilities are now also seeing denials from Medicare Administrative Contractors, or MACs, for unspecified codes listed anywhere in the first nine diagnoses on the claim. Why is this happening? So many parts to this question that I can answer. So there are specific bilateral lateral codes that are assigned. So if you have, for example, a fractured hip or a hemiplegia or hemiparesis, there are laterality codes assigned to those diagnoses that have a specific laterality. Either it's right, left, bilateral. If there is no bilateral, the instructions are to code both the left and the right if it occurs on both sides. And what we're seeing in these MCE edits is that the MACs are denying for unacceptable diagnoses in field 67, which is the principal diagnosis, as Carol mentioned, but they're also seeing denials for these unacceptable diagnoses related to the unspecified laterality in those top eight additional diagnoses in field 67A through 67H on the Medicare claim. So in this MCE edit, they identify the unspecified codes as these unspecified laterality codes. And in our setting, we really should not have unspecified laterality. If there's a fractured hip, if there's a hemiplegia, we need to know and should know for part of our care planning for this resident what side is affected. Otherwise, how are we going to provide care to the resident? So this is why we're now seeing some denials because it should be an extremely rare occurrence. And why would you be providing care to an unspecified side? So we're noting that in those additional codes, in addition to that primary diagnosis. So in the internet only manuals, the Medicare claims processing manual, chapter six, section 30, that speaks to billing for SNF and PPS services. It mentions about the principal diagnosis code, and that needs to be the most specific diagnosis code related to the HIPAA required ICD-10 coding conventions, coding guidelines, coding instructions. But then there is also a note about the other diagnosis codes uh, that are required required on the SNF claim. And the instruction is that the SNF enter the full ICD-10 CM code for up to eight additional conditions in the appropriate form locator. And as I mentioned, on the UBO4 form, that's going to be that field locator box 67A through 67H. Now, on the claim, there are additional boxes beyond 67H that additional diagnoses can be added. However, according to the claims processing manual, Medicare is only going to look at those top eight additional diagnoses. So that's where we really need to focus what those primary and additional diagnoses are that will support the reason why Medicare is paying for the claim. 
very, very important to make sure that at the facility level, not only are you using the ICD-10 coding guidance, looking at the medical record, querying the physician to make sure you have the most accurate diagnosis, but then you also have to look at what order should these diagnoses be in, and those top eight additional diagnoses need to be those ones that are focused on that reason for skilled care, and this is where you have to be cautious of using those unspecified codes, namely for the laterality. Now, there are many different uses for unspecified codes and the ICD-10 coding guidance gives us examples of when unspecified codes would be appropriate, uh, the default codes, which are generally the unspecified code for that category that we're looking up in the ICD-10 coding manual, and the use of signs and symptoms. In many cases, that's appropriate. And in most cases, those will not get a claim rejected if they are in those eight additional diagnoses fields. It's really just looking at that laterality as the big cause for those rejections. So it's very important to make sure that we are using those coding guidelines and whoever is in charge of anything to do with ICD-10 codes, that they have the most updated guidelines, that they're following it, that they're not just doing you know, a search in the software or a search in the, an internet search engine to find that information. It's very important that we have the most accurate and specific codes in place, not only for billing, but to make sure that we have an appropriate care plan in place to care for the resident. I couldn't agree with you more, Jennifer. I used to see old ICD-10 coding manuals in the facility and think to myself, you know, the cost of one manual alone may be recouped just by using the correct ICD-10 code. Absolutely. Listeners, stay tuned while we take a quick break. Accurate ICD-10 CM diagnosis is more important than ever. In a Packens four-part ICD-10-CM coding certificate program, Carol Mayer guides post-acute care nurses and IDT members through the process of determining and identifying the most appropriate ICD-10-CM codes. Learn more about this on-demand workshop and certificate program at apacken.org backslash education. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Carol and Jennifer. How can our listeners avoid denials due to unspecified codes? Well, as I mentioned, Amy, it's so important for the facilities to have somebody who really has the knowledge about ICD-10 coding and understand where the codes come from and that there are these coding guidelines and conventions. There's different sections of the official coding guidelines that speaks to coding conventions, general coding guidelines, and then chapter-specific coding guidelines. Before you even start looking up a diagnosis, you really need to understand those individual guidelines that are in, usually it's in the front of a manual or you can download it from CMS or CDC, what those guidelines are. And then in addition to that, following the steps for coding, starting with a full review of the medical record, 
understanding that diagnosis codes can only come from a physician or if your state allows it, a physician extender. If we don't have enough information about that, we need to be querying the physician or physician extender to make sure we have a clear picture of that condition. Once we have that list in place, then we need to make sure that we're using the ICD-10 coding guidelines, the coding manual, looking up that code in the alphabetical index, and then using the tabular list to finalize that code. It really needs to be more than just a search in your software or in that you know internet engine whatever it is there needs to be time taken uh, I, I think it's time for facilities to start to have maybe a diagnosis coding champion uh, when looking at pressure ulcer management a lot of times we focus on you, know, you really need to have at least one wound champion in your facility to assist with assigning stages and determining what the different wounds are. And I think we need to look at ICD-10 coding the same way. There really needs to be someone who is that champion of the knowledge and understands all of the steps that are required to accurately assign the diagnosis codes in the building and making sure that each diagnosis is appropriate. I would like to just mirror Jennifer's information about how important it is to take your time to code correctly. We have to focus on the resident and it should be a team. We need a champion of the team, but we need a team that's going to look at the medical record and determine the main reason, main diagnostic reason that the resident requires skilled care in the nursing home. And then we have to look it up in the ICD-10 coding manual. In the alphabetic index, we start, we find the code that's most specific, move to the tabular list. I always recommend that you start by looking under the first three characters of the code it sent you to, because that's often where we find those instructions about code first something, and that we have to make sure we are following those instructions, or we may have problems getting through the edits. And then once we've determined that we know where we're going, find the correct code at the highest degree of specificity, now we're going to look at not only the mapping file in CMS, but we also now need to look at that list of edits. And you'll be able to find that on the APACAN website where you found this link to the podcast today. And you want to make sure that the code you have chosen will map, but also is not considered unacceptable for the primary diagnosis. And you need to do this very soon into the resident's Medicare stay. You do not want to wait until the assessment reference date to make this decision because if you find that the diagnosis that's been documented by the physician is not specific enough to be able to map to payment or not specific enough to pass through the edits, you would need to query the physician for the physician to document a more specific diagnosis for that resident. And so I would do that as soon in the stay as possible, maybe the day after admission, Often by then we have all of the medical records from the hospital and perhaps the attending physician has already seen the resident and done the H&P. And so we have diagnoses to consider and then the team will decide what is the primary diagnosis that will require the most skilled care 
and make sure that it maps to payment and gets through the edits. And that would then be entered in I-20B on the MDS. And then we're gonna need a final look at all the diagnoses. As Jennifer noted, we have to not only be concerned about the primary diagnosis on the MDS and in field locator 67 on the claim, we also need to look at all of our supporting diagnoses. And we want those supporting diagnoses to paint the picture of the complexity of the resident to show all of the care and the reason they need our care. We need all of those codes on the claim, but we have to make sure that they're specific enough to show the picture and that they will also pass through the MCE edits. And so again, following the coding guidelines, looking at the list of unacceptable diagnoses and making sure that any code and field locator A through H is not listed as an unacceptable, unspecified code. So at the triple check meeting, I often see that the biller is just reading the list of ICD-10 codes and everyone's sitting around the table looking at each other like, I don't know, because it's just a list of codes. At triple check, you're going to need to have someone with a coding manual who actually is looking up those codes or having been prepared for the meeting and saying, we're using code B95.84, which is, and so everyone can really hear what is going on the claim and checking one more time that it has enough characters and it is specific enough and is not going to catch in the edits for being not specified enough to pass through those claims. So a daily meeting, daily PPS meeting, where we're focusing on determining the primary diagnosis and making sure that passes through and getting that primary diagnosis all on the care plan and the MDS, and that everyone is aware of the chosen primary diagnosis. And then in the final claims processing that we are in the triple check that we're making sure all of the diagnoses on the claim will pass through those MCE edits. Thank you for that information. Before we close out today's podcast, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think that just mirroring again what Jennifer said, having knowledge about ICD-10 coding. It's not something that we've learned in nursing school, but it is very important for our residents that we have the correct diagnoses on their medical record and in our MDS. And so when we're doing the MDS, even quarterly throughout their stay, it's a time to take another look at their diagnoses and their medical record and determine if they need to be updated, ask the physician to resolve it, and that this is a process that does take a lot of thought, but is very important for payment and very important for our residents' medical records. Thank you, Carol. Jennifer, do you have any final thoughts to add that you would like to share with our listeners? It's so important to have this process be accurate. And individual to our setting, it's sometimes easy to just look at the hospital documentation and copy what they have for ICD-10 codes. And it may not 
be appropriate for our setting. Just because the resident had a specific discharge diagnosis from the hospital does not mean that that is going to be our primary reason for skilling that person under Medicare. We need to look individually at the resident in our setting the care that we are providing to the resident. Now, certainly it's going to be based on what they receive their qualifying hospital stay for and must be related to care that they received for a condition that they received care for in that hospital, but it may not match. So we need to look at that individually. Then we need to also assign our codes individually. Although the hospitals generally do have coders, we still need to look at our own individual documentation. Perhaps our physician in-house has done a history and physical and has some more information about a particular code. And maybe it was listed as an unspecified code in the hospital, but now we have more detail from our attending physician where we can assign a more specific code. And that can change. So even from, as Carol mentioned, you know, getting this information in as soon as possible upon admission, if we notice that something has changed and the physician has clarified or adjusted something, we need to make sure that that gets reflected in the medical record as that change occurs. And a lot of times in the softwares, there's the ability to jot a note as to why you're changing something or discontinuing something or resolving something. We want it to tell the story. So if your software has the ability to do that or somewhere in the medical record, jot a note, why are we changing this code? We have new information from a history and physical that we have a more accurate and, and specific diagnosis to really tell the story, not only of what's going on with the resident, but what we are doing with that coding, because it's, it's a fluid process. It can be changing. So from the time we admit the resident to the time we do triple check, those codes may have adjusted a little bit. Things may have resolved, new codes, you know, diagnosis may be impacting that skilled care, we need to look and make sure that at triple check that that claim reflects all of the skilled care provided in that entire claim period. So whatever your to and from date is on your claim, that could be an entire month. Many things may have happened to that resident. So not only do we need to look at what codes are in place on admission, but continuing to resequence and making sure that everything is reflected in that claim for each claim period. So you may not want to resolve the pneumonia that was initially the reason why they were getting some skilled care at the beginning of the month. Maybe it resolved mid-month, but they still receive skilled care for that. So we want to make sure that that still is on the claim. And sometimes you may need to look at your individual software to see how is that pulling to the claim. Because a lot of times these integrated software systems have one system for sequencing for clinical purposes, and then another part of the program that sequences for the claim. So this may be something you may want to reach out to your software vendor and find out how can I sequence this so it carries to my claim appropriately. And then maybe there's a different way for a sequencing for clinical if we don't want to see that pneumonia in the clinical record anymore or that UTI but we do still want to see it on the claim. How can we do that? So that, I think that's an important process that facilities need to be aware of as well. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. 
To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NAC Chat Podcast. Heard the news about how you can improve quality care and increase efficiency with Ability? Ability offers a range of applications to simplify the complexity of healthcare, allowing organizations of all types and sizes to spend more time on care and less time manually collecting, analyzing, and reporting data. This allows you to remain in compliance while making data-driven decisions that benefit residents. With Ability, your facility can improve resident outcomes, optimize reporting data, enhance reimbursements, and much, much more. Discover what Ability has to offer at abilitynetwork.com slash a pack-in.